And welcome to Tuesday Home Time. It's October already, but today there's lots to talk about. Is the Australian War Memorial backing down on its stand on the frontiers wars? Why has the Australian government cut aid funding to Palestine? How IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, works to achieve its aims? More on the campaign to stop deep sea mining? A reflection on world Events by Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. But first, the week that was with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when Optus, yes, yes, yes. Customers, no, no, no. Op, toss out your data. Yes, 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 and yes, it's stuffed up big time. Opt you, no, no, no. All the yous were stuffed up. Many had not even been customers for more than a decade, but no probs, because parent company Sing Tell the World Your Details said it's sorry and, and was backing up toss out Supremo Kelly Bayer Ross Moore in the proverbial, who said it was victim of a sophisticated attack. While the government reckoned it was lack security, but in fairness to Sing Tell the World and Kelly, it must have been sophisticated lack security, making it grossly unfair that governments are demanding that Op toss out, yes, pay the costs of dragging their customers and ex-customers out of the proverbial, a mere 9.8 million Opt use now exposed to potential fraud. For goodness sake, they said they were sorry, and we can be sure they are sorry and for themselves. On which that's a mere 9.8 million we suspect likely to become very quickly ex-customers, but their information will remain with Optos out, yes, not that it matters, because everyone else will have it as well anyway. And imagine how many new customers will be lining up to say, yes, yes, yes. Also imagine how distressed poor Kelly and poor Sing Telva must have been when a tech journalist came up with an unthinkable blunder of monumental proportions, one that a high school student shouldn't make, if anything a slight on high school students. For eons, the refusal of the National Honour and Glorify Train Killing Museum even to acknowledge that the first peoples of this country were slaughtered in the frontier wars has been a slight on that warmongering body, with its supremo Brendan Nill Memorial son adamant that slaughter on home soil was not real train killing, not worthy of glorifying, mainly because there was nothing to glorify, and then along comes a three-part series, The True Blue Aussie Wars, and after but two episodes, the honour and glory train-killing lot suddenly see the writing on the wall and declare there will be writing on the wall as they spend millions to increase their honour and glorification of train-killing. Brendan sounding like the biggest supporter of Indigenous rights ever. They will acknowledge the slaughter and theft, as this week's episode highlighted a young mother enjoying a walk on the beach with her daughter and a friend, shot in the back by a white settler, and then, finding she hadn't died, smashed to death with an axe. The murder exonerated because to charge the settler might deter other settlers and coppers and trained killers from slaughtering the indigenous, defending their stolen lands. Fast forward to now. And a northern troubler was he 
uh, copper and ex-trained killer Zachary Rolfe, who boasts how he enjoys bashing and hurting people, shoots a young indigenous man in cold blood and then, when he is not yet dead, shoots him again and then is exonerated by an all-white jury, showing how far we have moved on. Thankfully, we are moving on in addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, with the socialists set to introduce a safeguard mechanism aimed at curbing emissions from Troublewazzi's 215 biggest polluters. Quite sensibly, a voluntary scheme to help us reach the 43% reduction by 2030 target. Voluntary scheme that 215 biggest polluters must be shaking in their boots. Well, they're Swiss leather shoes, but there is one problem. Cutting polluting, albeit only a little bit, will cost money. And the big polluters, led by wood profit side energy, have come up with a logical solution. The public purse should finance the cost of not polluting. Because it's not like the big, big polluters have made fortunes, creating the problem they're now being asked voluntarily to do a little bit about. See, cutting pollution will give overseas rivals an unfair advantage. Forget the minor fact that many of the overseas rivals are the same companies. And good, good news, we can all rest a little easier now. The Minister for 43% Less Pollution, Chris Bowlander Capital, has bowed to capital and announced a trade-exposed industrial firms may be offered taxpayer-funded financial support. Phew! Oh, and no need to mention, but the big polluters all say they want nothing more than to reduce their big pollution, but it's most unreasonable if we also have to pay for it highlighting the win-win social benefits of corporate welfare and exposing the waste in squandering that money on, well, doll bludgers, for instance, and thank goodness the socialists have not responded as quickly to calls for that retrograde welfare to be increased. Although, more correctly, they did respond just as quickly, rejecting the proposal. Good to see an anti-corruption commission bill finally hitting Parliament Although disturbing that caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer says it gets the right, you know, like balance, that's a worry. Also worried, Pete's coalition um, sidekick hayseed and sheepshit party supremo David Little to be proud of, complaining that the socialists are obsessed with alleged pork barrelling by the coalition and denying, quite properly denying, there was any pork barrelling, as proven by the Auditor General, who looked at one community development fund, although he was a bit critical, a slight suggestion there might have been a touch of pork barrelling, but the figures don't show that. Why coalition and marginal seats picked up as little as 137 million, while Socialist Party seats copped a massive whopping 34 million? Can't spot any imbalance there. 19.8% of the grants to the Socialists. What are they complaining about? It's almost 20%. David Little to be proud of is spot on. They're obsessed. So hard to see how the Auditor General could suggest such a thing.
Related matter, two retired beaks reckon all those last-minute pre-election appointments by then-Attorney General Macalia cost the workers to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, an extension of appointments which didn't expire for eons, are probably illegal making their decisions illegal. For instance, former Caring Business Class Party Senator Curran Sinon, a non-judicial deputy president whose term at half a million a year was due to expire in December 2023, was extended by good old Michaela to May 2027. But Poor independent Curran must have been so distressed at the publication of a photo showing her home, her very, very expensive home, most definitely not in a working class suburb, as someone had placed a huge, huge Josh Pride M. Iceberg's election poster on her front fence just to prove her independence, which obviously inspired Michaela. An ANU survey showed that political right-wingers are least likely to receive their third or fourth booster COVID vaccine, so that's promising. Also promising, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Leftwig's assertion that Trublowozzi will fight to free Professor Sean Turnell, sentenced to three years imprisonment in Myanmar, for the heinous crime of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, will not give up until he is released. Promising? Yes, promising, because obviously Petty Left Wing would just as vigorously argue and relentlessly pursue the release of Julian Assange by His Most Gracious Majesty's home country and our father country, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, facing imprisonment or ongoing incarceration for the heinous crime of exposing U.S. of war crimes, trained killer crimes. Interesting, that trained killer crimes in a war that it that is was a war crime itself. War crime upon war crime. That's got to deserve 175 years in the slammer, but Penny will see justice is served. Rotting in his isolation cell, Julian must so appreciate the magnificent support he has and is receiving from the Trublowozzi government, making it hard to believe why all these long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden working and iron lots are carrying on trying to disrupt that gathering of responsible merchants of death in Brisbane, Land Forces Weapons Expo, displaying the lethal simplicity with which their merchants of death products can facilitate train-killing crimes, war crimes, the very stuff of maintaining our security against, well, against that which can't be named, unless you're Constable Duffer, who knows we must invade that which he can name evil, evil China, guaranteed to be yet another great military success story. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Since 
opening its doors in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Long overdue, more fully chronicled, the frontier wars between First Nations, colonial troops, police and militia, decades obstinately defending the bloody truth of Australia's foundation history, assist Australians to remember, interpret and understand its enduring impact on Australian society. Just some of the comments following the report in the media that the Australian War Memorial commits to, quote, more broader, deeper, unquote, depiction of frontier wars. I'm reading the report of the back down of the War Memorial to include the frontier wars more fully. I wrote to Dr Sue Wareham, President of MAPW, who has campaigned for the inclusion for many years, and added congratulations, but that perhaps that was a bit premature. What happened last week was that there was an event at the memorial and it was to announce a geothermal project associated with the huge expansion that's going on. We could say a wee bit about that, but in the course of the press conference that was there, a journalist asked the memorial about the frontier wars because there'd been quite a lot of publicity about them recently, and I think probably particularly from Rachel Perkins' brilliant series, which is on television at the moment, The Australian Wars. So a question was asked about any plans Uh, in relation to the frontier wars because I've had publicity and the memorial replied that the council have considered the issue and yes, they will be looking at the frontier wars uh, in a more, the exact wording was to the effect that looking at them in a more in-depth fashion. They did state, as they always do state, that they already recognise the frontier wars, although that recognition thus far is not in any not in any real real sense of, of recognising the importance of the frontier wars. It's really just a matter of some artworks and other similar pieces which are scattered throughout the memorial. So what we know at the moment is that the council is considering doing more, but we don't know anything more than that. We don't know how much, how important is this to the Memorial Council? Are they just planning some small increase on what they're already doing so that they can say that they've taken on board public comment? Or are they planning something significant which really does recognise the full impact of the frontier wars um, and also a really important part which hasn't been mentioned by the memorial is commemorate are we actually going to commemorate these wars basically we we know hardly anything about what the memorial is planning except that they've said that they are planning something more on the frontier wars 
are you happy with the way the the media has covered this in the last couple of days? Well, I think any media attention to this is good. I wouldn't want to put put a negative slant on what the media media has done. I think any interpretation that this struggle to get adequate recognition and in commemoration of the Frontier Wars at the memorial, any interpretation along those lines is premature. But media attention on this and keeping up the pressure on the war memorial is very good and very important and that's what we need to do. And there is a lot more attention to it now, isn't there? Even before Rachel Perkins' series, people were writing about it, journalists were writing about it, even people connected or had been connected with the War Memorial have been writing about it and giving their points of view. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, And in fact, calls for recognition and commemoration of the Frontier Wars at the War Memorial have been there for literally decades, uh, many, many, many years. So this is not new. It's taken a really long time for these calls to actually get um, adequate attention. But one of the prominent people who's been calling for this is Peter Stanley, who was chief historian at the memorial for many years and he's now professor at ADFA but he's been he's been calling for this for decades it's all documented historians Henry Reynolds is a prominent one Lyndall Ryan and others there there are other names too have been calling in in similar fashion for a long time for proper recognition and commemoration of the frontier war so it's not new but uh, yes you're right it's good that there is finally some decent attention to this issue. Well, you're leaving your your organisations out of that and they should be included in that list, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. MAPW has been calling for this for, for some years. Other organisations similarly, but yes, we've been putting it, try, trying to put it on the agenda publicly and in submission to government where where we can. So we've been using every opportunity to raise this also. I think it's a combination of voices and that's um that's good. That's the way change most often comes about, but it's a lot it's been a long time coming with this. And as mentioned, we don't yet know the extent of the change that's planned and I suspect that we're going to have to keep up a lot of pressure to make sure that it is sufficient. Well, if the series by Rachel Perkins doesn't do something, surely, what is your opinion of it? There is one final of the series left. How are you seeing it? I think think the series is absolutely brilliant. It's depicting what happened in a way that's hard to ignore. It has an emotional impact, which is a plus that shouldn't be decried because painful episodes in a nation's history do have an emotional impact but we need to we need to recognize that take it on board and recognize that the emotional impact must be far far harder and greater for the first nations people themselves i speak as a say a white person in this country but we must recognize that the impact on the the first nations people is severe and it's ongoing whatever greater recognition and action we can take in relation to that um, is important. One of the 
interesting things and really rather ironic things which also came out in the press conference at the memorial last week was the war memorial reiterating that this was from the director reiterating that their most important task at the moment is to recognise the contemporary wars, so the wars this century, Iraq, Afghanistan and other places. There are issues, there are concerns around that because the closer we are in time to a particular war, the easier it is to politicise it and to exclude any criticism. So there there are issues around that. But one of the ironic things which the memorial state is that the veterans of those wars have, quote, waited long enough, end of quote. Well, if the veterans of contemporary wars, which are less than, equal to less than 20 years uh, ago, this, these, these wars, if those veterans have waited long enough, what about the people in this country who've waited like, for two, 200 years, their descendants, for recognition of what's happened? So there's still, there's still some strange messages coming out of the War Memorial. So we need to, we need to keep the pressure up and make sure that the recognition of the, the frontier wars is as full and full and thorough as it needs to be and not just an add-on in the huge expansion that's going on. To explain part of the concern there is that if the memorial have already decided what they want, want to put, well, decided in sort of big picture terms what they want to put into the new galleries, then how are they going to accommodate adequate recognition and commemoration of the Frontier Wars, which needs, well, it really needs to be front and centre, even if it's not absolutely front and centre in the memorial, how is it going to be accommodated in the new space and that hasn't been explained, how's that going to be tied in with everything else that the council and the director are planning for the new space so a lot of unanswered questions still i did read that the 500 million dollar expansion has already gone over its limit it's i think it was 50 million over its estimate yes um it has gone up so the government is, has paid more for it and i guess we, we shouldn't be surprised that costs go up as the memorial say yes costs do go up but this wasn't apparently uh, wasn't factored in originally when the budget was was agreed to by the government and there's a long story behind that too the government actually government of the day which was under Prime Minister Morrison actually approved the project before they had seen the detailed business case which was quite extraordinary and quite improper so yes there are questions about the budget it's it's pretty likely that there'll be further increases and what's the cap, what's the ceiling? Is the, is the government going to put any limit on how much more they're prepared to pay for this project, which is already extraordinarily expensive and far more expensive than than it should be? To There were, there were other options to expand the war memorial space, which were much cheaper and more efficient. So unanswered questions on the budget issue too. There is the story that Dr Nelson is planning on leaving. If he does leave, what do you believe 
that will mean for the memorial? Well, that will be interesting to see. Yes, it's been announced that he is leaving. He's taken up a higher position with Boeing. Uh, he'll no longer be the re- regional representative for Boeing, but he'll be one of the global leaders based in London. So he's becoming more strongly identified with that company, which is one of the world's leading weapons producers. So yes, we don't know what that will mean for the memorial. We don't know. We don't yet know who will be chair of the council because he's been in that position for not all that long since he came back onto council. But he's been chair, so we don't know who will be chair. Tony Abbott is there on the council, and I guess would be a potential chair that's not a good prospect. One of the really important things that should be noted about the council is that there is still no historian at all on the Australian War Memorial Council, which is pretty shocking for an institution that has the responsibilities to tell history and to tell it honestly, and there is no historian on the War Memorial Council. So the vacancy created by Brendan Nelson leaving should be filled by an historian, and I guess one could argue strongly that it should be an historian with expertise in the frontier wars. Now, if that were to be the case, if that were come, came to pass, then one would have strong, strong hope that the War Memorial is really serious about proper recognition and commemoration of the frontier wars. At the moment, we have some hope, but that hope needs to be to be fulfilled. Uh, we need to see some signs that the memorial is very, very serious about this. How long is it since there has been a historian on the council? Quite some years. I forget the exact number of years, but it's been it, it's been quite some time. Too long. And I'd imagine one person on a council might not necessarily make a big difference. That's true. One person on a council can't necessarily move mountains, but at least it would fill a a gap that's there. Um, Perhaps not to the extent that we would like, but it would be a big improvement. I'm pretty sure I can remember Peter Stanley saying he, he beat his head against a brick wall quite a lot while he was there. Yes, he'd be the best person to ask about that, but certainly on the issue of the frontier wars, he's been advocating for this uh, for, for a long time, uh, as have other historians, of course, whom we, whom we mentioned. You mentioned right at the beginning, Sue, geothermal. What's the story there? Geothermal is a, well, it's an energy energy-saving measure, so basically using the heat from the earth, from fairly deep down, to use it for the heating and cooling within the memorial, use it as an, as an energy source. It's good to be using that as a renewable energy source. One does wonder, though, that, well, one doesn't wonder, wonder, one sort of knows that there would have been a lot more a lot of energy saved if this huge expansion and the enormous excavation that's going along with it, thousands of truckloads of stuff that's been moved out of the memorial and dumped in another part of Canberra. So there would have been a huge amount of energy saved by not doing this project with all the excavation on the scale that it's being done. So the memorial will want to spruik their carbon credentials there. 
interestingly, the minister who was at the announcement last week, Minister Matt Keogh, at one stage said that there were a thousand tonnes of carbon being saved and at another point said there were a million tonnes of carbon being saved. Even on that front, one asks questions um, about it. Basically good to be using renewable energy, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that um, that's been a, a major factor in this whole development. Just finally, Sue, and a very high-profile doctor like Dr Nelson connecting and actually working closely within an organisation like Boeing who are manufacture, obviously, the, the merchants of death, I suppose. Yes. Brendan Nelson was in a role with a weapons company even when he was director of the memorial, which was which a lot of people thought was highly improper and he was receiving payment for that role, payment which he said he passed on to the memorial, and we, we believe that, of course, but that's not the point to be receiving, to, to be in a role with a weapons company while you're directing a memorial to the victims of war, those who've died in war. It's not right. There's a conflict of interest there, and that should never have been the case being on the council and having a role with weapons companies, a similar problem there. Of course, what he does after he leaves the council, that's entirely up to him, nobody's business. But there shouldn't be places within the War Memorial for people who've got links, with significant links with the weapons industry because, as we know, the weapons industries are the big winners from warfare. Uh, They're the ones who need wars for their profits and they will want a particular telling of the story of warfare. They won't want a full accounting of everything that warfare does because that will go against their interests. So we need to be ever mindful of this issue of conflicts of interest, which is a big problem in public life generally. And the war memorial is one place in particular that we shouldn't be having those conflicts arising. And of course, a number of those companies have in the past, and I'm not sure whether they still do, have had a connection within the war memorial. Organisations, individuals give significant amounts to the memorial then their names are displayed within the memorial, not necessarily all of them, but but some of the the big ones' names are displayed within the memorial. Um, And there are other benefits. I mean, corporations don't give away sums of money unless there's some benefit in it for them, and that's usually a benefit in terms of public image and that sort of thing. To have the names of weapons companies displayed within the war memorial is really uh, is really quite quite offensive in a place where we should be simply commemorating, educating ourselves, and commemorating those who've died in wars. There's no place for the names of the companies that have profited from wars. So that's another issue that's ongoing with the memorial um, and Medical Association for Prevention of War will be maintaining our activity around that campaign to get the weapons companies out of the memorial. Thank you once again, Sue. Thank you very much, Jan. From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, 
The Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralised, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to land forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter. Afida Union Aid Abroad is definitely an example of From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Back in 1983, an Australian nurse, Helen McHugh, worked as a nurse educator with World Health Organisation in the Middle East. On return, she took a proposal to the ACTU President, Cliff Nolan, influenced by her experiences working in Palestine refugee camps in Lebanon to establish a global justice organisation in Australia. And Afida was born a year later. Today I'm speaking with Ken Davis, the International Programs Manager for Afida. And Ken, looking at the scope of Afida, its work today in solidarity, not charity, can you give us some details of where that work is, what it entails and how the work is funded? Union United Broad Afida is based on practical solidarity uh, around four themes at the moment, workers' rights, trade unions and workers' health. The second is labour migration and refugees. The third is women's organisations and, um, you know, building feminist movements. And the last is climate crisis and how, essentially, how workers respond to the climate crisis, you know, and just transition. The biggest programs are in Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. A lot of work on the Thai-Burma border with the refugees from Burma. Work with trade unions in Indonesia, Samoa and Philippines. And work with farmers and uh, working women in Timor. With trade unions and farmers in South Africa. With women's empowerment in Palestine and with the refugees in, um, in Beirut. How does it actually work? You go over there, you contact different organisations, um, see what their needs are. Sure. We've got mainly long-term partnerships with, um, you know, the Women's Union or the Trade Unions in Vietnam and Laos, with independent unions or um, NGOs or, you know, farmers in other countries. So we always work through partnership partners. We've got offices with local staff in um, Phnom Penh, Vientiane, Hanoi, Dili. So, yeah, we work on in terms of partnership where we are accredited with Australian government, so we receive just over a million dollars to subsidise our projects from the Australian government. But most of our funding is from the Australian trade union movement and from, you know, individual members and donors. But we also cooperate with our sister organisations, the solidarity agencies based on the trade unions in Finland and um, Sweden, uh, United States and so on. So we cost share a range of projects or we cooperate with you know, with other donors, and also you know, other, sometimes other governments, like the Irish government, funds us for 
a women's political leadership training in uh, Vietnam. So these are mainly short-term or long-term? The projects are short-term, but usually the partnerships are very long-term. You know, our partnerships in, uh, you know, with the, in Lao PDR is, you know, with the trade unions there, so that's a long-term project, partnership, sorry, long-term partnership with the Vietnamese unions and the Vietnamese women's union, relatively long-term with independent unions in Cambodia and women's organisations. So mainly quite long-term partnerships with either local independent organisations or local, you know, official organisations in the sense of the trade union movement. Can we focus on Palestine? I'd imagine that the connections with Palestinians goes right back to the very beginning. That's right. So it's 40 years since the massacres in Sabra and Shatila, which motivated an Australian nurse, Ellen McHugh, to work with the Palestinian nurses, but also to ask the ACTU to build a international solidarity um, agency like the Norwegians, like Norwegian People's Aid. And that was agreed, you know, back in 1984. First project was training the Palestinian nurses in Sydney, actually, the Palestinian nurses from Lebanon um, that had survived the massacres. We've had projects with the camps in Lebanon since, since then and inside Palestine in the occupied territories since 1989. At the moment, the Australian government won't allow Australian organisations to operate in Gaza with Australian government funding. And they've cut aid to Palestine or to Palestinians, you know, massively, or at least the former government. The current government may be increasing United Nations Relief and Works money, but um, there's no increase in other funding, you know, to help Australian NGOs work with Palestinian civil society. At the moment, we've got a small, um, relatively small training program for women for employment, women's cooperatives, actually, in the West Bank. But I think... For ourselves and the other agencies, you know, the Anglicans or National Council of Churches or the others that have been working with Palestinians a long while, we'd really like the new government to here to restore uh, a serious aid program to Palestine or to Palestinians through Australian NGOs in partnership with Palestinian civil society. So that lack of funding from the federal government that was the Morrison government. Is that the only one? Before that, it was okay? Look, a, a, a couple of years ago, the amount of funding was about $40 million. Uh, now it's down to $29 million, and, and they've restored United Nations Relief and Works funding to around $20 million, or the current government said that they will do that. But that only leaves $9 million for work in the, in the territories. Now, the, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is out of control because 15 years of blockade by Israel primarily and also Egypt, the lack of water, the lack of drinkable water or usable water in Gaza. So you know, United Nations sees the 2.2 million people in Gaza is at extreme risk in terms of access to energy, water, food, uh, health. So the situation is very dire and also the situation in the West Bank is not great because they're completely dependent on the Israeli economy. Uh, you know, during COVID and stuff, there was even more constraints. So, and, and also lack of funding to the PA means that, you know, the wages of nurses, teachers, other public sector workers, you know, is not guaranteed and that has an enormous impact on the economies. The need for Palestinians is is much greater. And of course, the need in, in that region is greater in terms of the needs in Syria or the Syrian refugees or the people in Lebanon or the crisis in Yemen. 
all of this, you know, this conflict based on climate crisis and geopolitical change is generating enormous need. Now, the, the needs of people in Southwest Asia or Middle East or whatever you want to call it are an important thing for, important issue, I should say, for a lot of communities in Australia. You know, it's not an irrelevant uh, question for Australia. And also, if you look at Australia's military engagement, you know, including sort of support for the Saudi efforts against Yemen, naval support, you know, Australia's always been able to make big commitments to, um, you know, military intervention and to, you know, military trade with, um, you know, with Saudi Arabia and with Emirates and with Israel. But from the point of view of the Australian population, a lot of people would expect uh, a decent humanitarian program through NGOs to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinians, either in Gaza or the West Bank or in exile in Lebanon or, you know, wherever. Are you saying that without that government support or government funding topping yours up, that you can't do the work in those countries? Yes. I mean, we, we, we can do work with funds that are donated by our members or, you know, in the case, you know, last, in May, you know, last year, you know, with the bombing of Gaza, the Arab communities and the Pakistani communities were very generous in um, giving us relief funds. But uh, for various reasons, the Australian government stopped its own uh, matched funding program with other agencies working in Gaza. You know, the appetite under the previous government for risk was very low in, in that sense. So, yeah, the impact, and it's not just Australia, it's also... Um, you know, the, the flow of money from many of the Arab countries or from Europe or from the United States to alleviate the situation in Palestine. And the situation in Palestine, you know, Palestine is not an inherently poor country. The problem in Palestine is, uh, is only about injustice. And that's what generates poverty for Palestinians in the occupied territories in particular and, and for the Palestinian refugees. The international community, as they say, <laughs> And Australia being complicit in that, in cutting aid flow to the Palestinians is, um, you know, it's a breach of trust since 1949, really, because, um, you know, people dispossessed have a right from the United Nations from 1949 to support. Has the attack by Israel on World Vision and Mr Halabi, has that made a difference to aid organisations going into Palestine? Look, absolutely. Like, I think there's a campaign against aid to Palestine, and it, it took different forms. Firstly, you know, historically it took the form of forbidding um, Australian government money to organise Palestinian organisations or Australian organisations that supported boycott of Israel, uh, and that affected some Palestinian partners, like the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, which is a World Vision partner. Then. Um, false allegations around support for terrorism against World Vision and then subsequently against the CEDA, and now to some extent against other rights. These false accusations and, um, you know, there's really no evidence being presented other than, the, um, other than you know, false confession and uh, uh, informers. And it's a ridiculous charge against uh, Mohammed al-Halabi, who I know, and who's not a Hamas supporter. This is an outrage, really, but it's symbolic, and it's about... Israel stopping aid to Gaza. That's what it's about, really. It's about squeezing the 2.2 million people in Gaza, half of whom are children and half of whom are refugees. And Israel wants a new solution, which is to have some enclaves in the West Bank that don't have sovereignty and to transfer Gaza 
literally transfer Gaza into Egypt to remove Gaza from the equation. And the point of separating Gaza from the West Bank is to deny that Palestinians are, have national self-determination. So all of this is part of a bigger um, campaign, I guess. And the other part of that is a lot of pressure internationally to remove funding from the United Nations Relief and Works, which is the agency set up by the United Nations to provide for the Palestinian refugees and which is absolutely essential both for the refugees outside Palestine but the refugees in Jerusalem, in West Bank, in Gaza. They depend on UNRWA for food in some cases, but mainly for basic health and basic education. To some extent, I welcome the idea that the government's, you know, restoring funding to UNRWA to 20 million. But the campaign or the, the attack on Mohammed al-Halabi is in a context of using the false accusations of terrorism to remove aid to, at least to Gaza, but uh, in general to the occupied Palestinian territories. Well, where does this leave a feeder? Look, we're only able to continue in terms of, uh, you know, we have government match funding in West Bank, but a small program uh, with our long-term partner, Man Development Centre, women's uh, business cooperatives, but you know, we're reliant on donations from, you know, the Australian Union movement, from uh, the Australian community and from, you know, our members. For our members or our constituency, you know, Palestine or Palestinians or, um, you know, Southwest Asia is, is a key uh, issue. We've got donations from the Australian Education Union, both for the um, early childhood education and women's empowerment in the camps in Beirut, but also for the... Um, you know, training for women's economic empowerment in, in the West Bank. I'd imagine you've been speaking with the new Australian government. Have you had any success there or any joy from speaking with either the public servants or the ministers? <laughs> Not yet. Pat Conroy uh, is the Minister for Aid, amongst other things. You know, he'll be speaking at our um, feeder annual dinner in Sydney, you know, later this month. And, you know, we have no reason to believe he's, you know, not got good um, intentions. Penny Wong is treading a very careful path as foreign minister. Like our sector, that's the Australian Council for National Development and other other stakeholders, will, you know, are, are already lobbying her office. I know the head of, um, you know, DFAT has changed, but there's not much change in the in the rest of the leadership. So there's a, what are you saying, the inertia from the, you know, from the previous, you know, governmental dispensation uh, around a lot of questions in aid. You know, you can't expect a new government to change everything in the first couple of weeks. You know, we and others will be in dialogue with Penny Wong's office and certainly Minister Conroy's office, you know, about what can be, you know, what can be advanced in terms of aid to Palestinians. And then other people will be lobbying Penny Wong's office around uh, foreign policy questions, around how Australia votes in the United Nations, questions going to the International Criminal Court, the ALP policy on recognising State of Palestine. You know, those questions are up to the, you know, the, the pro-Palestinian lobbyists in Australia. And, and we'll um, work with, you know, the Anglicans and uh, Action Aid and um, Australian Council of Churches and others around the question of aid to Palestine. And I'm quite sure the Israel lobby has got their, got their ear of the governments as well. I don't know whether the, the current government to well, limit. Look, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's no single Israel lobby. There's, you know, different 
pro-Israel groups operating, as is their right. I think internationally, the main strategy is to remove funding from the United Nations Relief and Works. You know, in the Trump era, the idea was to invest in Saudi Arabia so that Saudi Arabia would for a limited number of Palestinian refugees and have control over an international agency that was an international charity supporting the Palestinian refugees, that um, through changes in Jordan and, um, you know, in Jerusalem uh, and in the West Bank, there would be Saudi and Emirati leadership of, you know, who was controlling all of rather than Palestinian sovereignty. Um, that particularly relates to, you know, Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, through an alliance between Emirates and Saudi and Israel and Egypt, there would be a new, a new Gaza, a high security enclave on Egyptian territory that, uh, you know, was under the control of, you know, those other governments, uh, which maybe would have, uh, like an export processing zone and things like that. So this plan is still in the heads of, you know, the, uh, of the Gulf monarchies and in Israel, but Obviously, the Biden administration, you know, is not following the, you know, <laughs> the heritage of Trump. What I mean is the basic question for Palestinians is self-determination. Now, how that works out is not up to us. But, um, you know, the, the situation in the region is moving very, very fast because of, you know, geopolitics, the politics of energy, the crisis, the climate crisis in terms of water, which affects a lot of places, nowhere more than Gaza or, you know, the Jordan Valley. So things are moving very fast, and also the, you know, the overall global geopolitical conflict between um, United States and Russia and China, but and regional powers like Turkey and Saudi and Iran uh, and Israel, all of that really affects how the international pro-Israel lobby strategizes. But in general, their strategy is to remove aid from the West Bank and from the refugees and from Gaza in order to push forward a solution that, you know, really denies Palestinian self-determination. Well, just to step back a bit, if Israel had done and, and would do now the right thing, there wouldn't be a need for UNRWA. Well, that's right. The, the purpose of, the, of UNRWA was to shift the obligation to support the refugees away from Israel. Obviously, that's in a profound sense that the United Nations agreed that the refugees to you know, their homes or the, you know, the, the children and grandchildren have got a right to return to their places of origin. Israel says they're not refugees because they're not born in Palestine, but they're refugees because they refused permission to return. The reality is they're refugees in Gaza or in West Bank or in Jerusalem or in Syria or Jordan or Lebanon or even in Australia. They're refugees because they're denied the right to return to their homeland. So the, the, the real answer is the right of return of refugees. But in the meantime, what's happened is the, the United Nations or the international community has assumed responsibility for the well-being and welfare of the refugees, now numbering around 5 million. So initially, you know, in 1948, it was seven, just over 700,000. But that number was increased after the 1967 war. And, of course, people have had children and grandchildren. It doesn't make any sense to either assume that because they're Arabs, they should be assimilated into any other Arab country. You know, Palestinians are a nation in as much as anyone else is a nation, in as much as Ukrainians are a nation or, you know, people from any country are a nation. 
and you know they have cultural and uh, sometimes religious and linguistic differences. It's not reasonable to assume that the refugee burden should fall on Lebanon or Syria or Jordan or Egypt or Iraq or or anywhere else. So this leaves millions of people dispossessed that need food, education, healthcare, and jobs. That's why UNRWA is a crucial question, and it's a good thing that the current government's doubled the amount of money to UNRWA, but. Overall, UNRWA is in you know crisis in terms of the amount of money it has. So you know if you're in Palestine in the occupied territories, there's four health systems. One is you know an expensive private health system like Israel. One is the Palestinian government health system, which you know runs out of money a lot. One is the NGO health system, you know like Patients Friends or you know you know Al Ahli, the Anglican hospital in Gaza. And then the other big health system is United Nations Relief and Works. When UNRWA runs out of money, it means people don't have medical care, don't have schooling, and don't have food. And this is how many years since Israel became part of that area? How many years have the people been suffering? Well, what the Israelis would say of the War of Independence was 1948, you know, after the Second World War. You know, Britain assumed uh, colonial control over, you know, Palestine and other areas after, you know, Australian troops helped defeat the Ottoman Empire. And then, um, you know, in what was a great betrayal, the British, you know, gave the Hashemite kings, Iraq and Jordan, the Saud family, Arabia, and then... um, you know, were supportive of the establishment not only of a Jewish homeland but a Jewish state in, you know, more than 70% of the land in Palestine. So in 1948, you have what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the, you know, the catastrophe. That is the basic moment of dispossession and the moment of, um, you know, denial of the self-determination of Palestinians. Yeah, it's a historic, uh, I don't know what to say, historic wrong since the, you know, post-World War to moment. Israelis argue that, uh, you know, six million Jews died in the Holocaust and uh, amongst others and that, you know, there needed to be a national home for Jews. And certainly a lot of people understand the need of Jewish people for a homeland, but that could have resulted in a binational or a democratic secular state rather than a Jewish state. So I guess that's the debate currently about what's the... There's three questions. One is the right of refugees to return. One is the occupation of uh, Gaza and East Jerusalem and the West Bank and, you know, the Syrian Golan Heights. And the third is, you know, that Israel be a state based on equality of its citizens, which, you know, it's not. And so many agencies such as Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Beth Selen, an Israeli organisation, and to some extent parts of the United Nations are understanding Israel as a single apartheid system. That is a system based on you know, ethnocracy and a system based on rights, based on race and peoplehood and, you know, descent and religion rather than based on equality. So that's why people are arguing that um, the Palestinian cases should be able to go to the International Criminal Court and that there could be a decision in relation to the Rome Statute, which covers crimes against humanity and the crime of apartheid. And apartheid is not only about South Africa, but about systems of racial domination. You know, I think Australia should allow, help support the ability of Palestine to take cases to the International Criminal Court. And it's probably up to us as Australian citizens to put a bit of pressure on the Australian government. That's right. You know, obviously there's a, you know, a lot of people here take the Israeli side, but a, a large, and a lot of people don't care, but a much larger part of the Australian population actually sees the injustice 
you know, to the Palestinians and wants a more just solution. And I think they expect, uh, you know, the Labor government to have quite different policies from, you know, the Morrison government, you know, which tried to recognise Jerusalem as capital, even though half of it is illegally occupied, you know, and tried to sort of say there's no occupation, there's disputed territories. But, you know, it's a military occupation, just like what Russia's doing in, you know, parts of Ukraine. Exactly. All right, well, thanks for explaining all that today. And Ken Davis is the International Programs Manager with Union Aid Abroad. Hi, I'm Monero from Fifth Row Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. The New International Bookshop will be having a little red book fair on Saturday, October the 8th. Come and grab journal bundles, $3 secondhand books, 10% off new books, and mass discounts on books by the radical independent publisher Interventions. Join us in the basement of 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, on Saturday, October the 8th, from 9am to 5pm. New International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter. IPAN, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, is a network of community and church groups, trade unions, peace and anti-war organisations who got together in September 2012 to launch IPAN. Today I'm speaking with Bevan Ramsden, who's been involved since shortly after its foundation. Bevan, I know you weren't there in 2012 when... IPAN was established, but that happened a couple of years later. So what were you involved in in those years leading up to joining IPAN? I have to go back a bit in time, but I mean, I was involved in the um, anti-Iraqi war um, demonstrations and organisations up at Newcastle at the time. Um, that was in 2003. But otherwise, I was um, that, around that time, I was, I was busy with work and um, and the family raising, I didn't spend a lot of time on peace work apart from being involved in the Iraqi stuff until I saw the um, been involved way back before that. But I'm talking about this current century. It wasn't until I saw this article about the formation of IPAN at a conference in Canberra in 2011, I think it was, or 2012. Um, and I saw the report of that, and I thought, gee, this is something that I'll be very interested in because I, I was involved in the Australian independence movement, which started in 1974 and was very active around the time of the, uh, of the dismissal of the Whitlam government and for, that, for a number of years after that. And um, I thought this is um, something I really would like to be involved in. So I got in touch with them, and I then subsequently involved in the... Uh, the committee of IPAN for a number of years. I, I stood down a year or two ago to try and improve the, um, the gender balance on the committee so that a very active young lady in Sydney could join. And I, I just work with the committee now. I just go to the committee meetings and, and help where I can. And, of course, I do the editing of the publication every month, Voice. I'm so pleased to be able to still be involved with 3CR. I mean, you interviewing me and I, I do a program with my friend Andrew Fullerton 
which we broadcast on um, alternative news. We do that every now and then. But um, having been a founder member, a founding member of 3CR back in 19, with our first meetings were 1974, and then the station was opened in 1976. And to see it still going and doing a wonderful job, um, some 47 years later, I think, 40, yeah, about 45 years later, is really uh, encouraging and uh, I'm very happy about that. Well, we don't have to go back that far to see what it was like when you were joining IPAN in, what, 2013-14. What were the issues at that time? Do you remember when you thought, well, I'll have yes, a go at this? The issue that um, really sparked off IPAN was Obama's uh, statement and to an audience in Parliament and also in Darwin that they were going to, the United States was going to relocate its forces from the Middle East to Asia. They called it the pivot to Asia. And that involved stationing American troops for the first time, foreign troops, on our soil in Darwin for six months every year. Now, that move sparked off a lot of concern that we were suddenly being drawn into United States military activity by having them stationed here. And um, that sparked a conference in Canberra that got, got IPAM going. For, for need, and, of course, the major issue was for an independent foreign policy not to be tied to the American foreign policy and certainly not be tied to the American military or integrated in with their activities. And that's been a concern ever since. And myself and Nick Dean here in Sydney, within IPAN, we, we, we got a, a campaign going called Give Them the Boot, and had appropriate visual with kicking, kicking an American soldier out over the sea. And um, the, the campaign was to collect old boots and uh, present a whole lot of them to the Defence Department with a bit of a speech about giving the Yanks a boot out of Darwin. It sort of, it went all right for a while. We did collect a lot of boots, and as a result of that, uh, we had a conference in Darwin, an IPAN conference, because that was the centre of this activity, in 2017 or 18, I forget which year it was now, we had our annual IPAN or biannual IPAN conference in Darwin, and of course um, went out to the to the barracks where the Americans were um, bedded down, and um, had an approach. We, we, they wouldn't let us go in. We we sort of stood around the gates. So we had quite a big demo, and and uh, Senator Jordan Steele John uh, spoke very well there, um, and we had the appropriate banners. A nice picture of all that out there. But, um, yeah, that was that campaign, Give Them the Boot, was aimed at the need to tell the American troops in Darwin, we don't want you here. And indeed, it's become worse and worse, Jane, because um, they've just embed not only embedded themselves in, they've set up a, a regional headquarters. It's interesting that the Americans divide the world up into... They're command areas, right? The world is divided up. And there's an area called the Indo-Pacific Command, which they have on a map, embraces Australia, all the countries to the north of us, including China and Japan, mind you, as part of the Indo-Pacific Command. Anyway, they've got a regional headquarters in Darwin now. 
And um, you, you probably have read about how we're um, extending the, the runway at Tyndall, the RAAF base, so that their B-1 bombers are able to land and refuel and operate from there. There's a huge fuel dump being constructed in Darwin to service their aircraft and um, probably ships. And, of course, as you know, we, every two years is this Talisman Sabre joint exercise where a huge number of American troops and Australian troops and other countries join together and practice for war. They practice on the land and on, at, and on the beaches. Um, there's an enormous number of helicopters and planes and ships and landing craft involved. And the last one, I think it was, we managed to get a, a document which described these this war exercise as preparation for um, advancing towards a mainland country, not named, by island hopping, um, something which the Americans did towards Japan in the Second World War, re reinvigorating that strategy. Of course, the island, the mainland that they're heading towards was unnamed as China, but this was this is practicing war against China, and this is something which, you know, it's really worrying to a lot of people. I mean, um, you probably saw the advertisement, which um, not the anti Australian anti AUKUS coalition, of which IPAN's a member, a founding member, coordinated and had organised. Nine hundred people signed that, and donated, and I think about. 90 organisations as well, nearly a 1,000 altogether. It's a call on the Australian government in the interests of our peace and security not to go to war with the United States and its AUKUS departments um, against China over Taiwan or the um, disputed waters in the, in the territorial waters in the South China Sea, not to go to war and indeed to stop this war preparation, which is costing enormous amount of money, the nuclear submarines they're proposing to acquire, which are long-distance hunter-killer submarines. They're not meant for work in defending our territorial waters. They're for long-distance work up in the South China Sea. And um, they're costing over $100 billion. I mean, we're in urgent need of hospital repair and um, upgrading. I think I heard... 10 billion is needed or 20 billion is needed to bring our hospitals up to scratch. We've got a lot of aftermath of COVID in, uh, to be fixed up, including um, our education system and the, uh, the general health system and housing. You know, we're, there are people who are desperate for housing in Australia, can't afford it, especially in Sydney. I don't know what it's like in Melbourne, but in Sydney, housing and rental housing is just out of the reach of many people. Some people are living in caravan parks because they can't afford to rent and certainly can't afford to buy a house. There's many things to be fixed up in this country before we start wasting money on war preparations. Can we talk a little about the organisations <laughs> who are part of IPAN? How diverse are they? Well, there is faith organisations, church groups, right? I'm trying to think of some... St Mary's Retreat, a Catholic nuns organisation that joined us throughout in Brisbane. Um, church groups, Sanitarian Church in Melbourne, of course, has always been a strong supporter of IPAN. Um, 
We've got a large number of trade unions now who have joined up in supporting IPAN, Electoral Trade Union in Queensland, the Maritime Maritime Workers Union, and and, and I just can't have got the list in front of me. The Melbourne Workers Union, one of their branches or state branches, a number of retired workers organisations have uh, joined. Um, there's a movement through the trade unions, progressive trade unions, to, to associate with us because they uh, have um, united under a, a banner, and I've heard you know, Warren Smith in, in Sydney from the Maritime Workers you know, saying how in times of war, who suffers? Workers suffer and are fed into the war as uh, cannon fodder, and it's workers in all countries who get, who get forced into war to take the brunt of it and their families. And so it's not in the interest of, of workers to get involved in, in a war, especially a war um, against China, our best trading partner, over an issue which is not um, affecting us. Taiwan has always been a province of China, and it was only a fact of history that the imperialists uh, protected the remnants of um, the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek that fled to Taiwan after they were defeated in the Civil War. And the Americans have protected them there for a long time, but Taiwan's always been a problem. It's not up to foreign countries to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. Let it, let it be, be solved peacefully, which I think it could be, uh, without external interference. But I got off the track there. Friends of the Earth, environmental groups, are members of, of IPAN, anti-nuclear groups, Nuclear Free Australia and so on, parts of IPAN, Just Peace, peace organisations like the CICD and Just Peace in Brisbane, Spirit of Eureka in Melbourne and, uh, and uh, in Adelaide. Yeah, um, it's a quite a diverse group of organisations. It's a network, not really an organisation, a network of, of groups that need want to um, communicate between themselves and get together around issues that arise, such as our conferences, like this um, newspaper ad activities that simply provides a, a focal point and a, a means of getting together around these important issues. Talk about some of the people who've stayed with that organisation through those years and and their backgrounds in peace and trade unions and and what their contribution is and what has your contribution been more? I know you say you're not on the committee or the board now, but can you can you explain how it works on a day or a weekly basis? Well, thanks to Zoom, we have a lot of meetings. But because being a, a national organisation, Jan, we're on the committee, um, there are people, at least two people from each state and territory. So we've got Western Australia, Northern Territory, you know, Adelaide, uh, uh, South Australia, Victoria, Tasmania, um, Canberra, and uh, Sydney, Brisbane, who I've missed. But um, all the states are represented on the committee. So when we have a committee meeting, uh, it's a Zoom meeting, and um, with a lot, with a, you know, generally a dozen people on it. And they, at times, we run them almost weekly, um, sometimes fortnightly, depending on what we're organising. Um, so that's quite frequent. And then within the IPAN committee, we form working groups around particular activities. We get a working group to organise the different conferences. There's a working group operating now to 
launch the IPAN inquiry report. Um, you may remember that uh, IPAN organised an inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in US wars, um, the alliance, and what are the alternatives. There was 280 written submissions um, which has been put into a report. That report is to be released in Parliament uh, in November. There's going to be an IPAN conference in Canberra at the same time, the day before. It'll be presented within Parliament and there'll be a, a press conference outside Parliament because that represented a lot of opinion throughout Australia about what Australia's involvement in these wars. We're talking about Vietnam, we're talking about Afghanistan and Iraq and the war preparations that are going on at the moment. And, of course, the, the general con consensus is that this is not in our interest and we need to extract ourselves from this sort of involvement as soon as we can. And uh, there's strong support for an independent foreign policy and, indeed, having our defence forces organised and equipped to simply defend territorial Australia and not get involved in these expeditionary, aggressive wars uh, with the United States, as has been going on. And I've been speaking with Bevan Ramsden, one of the many, many members of IPAN, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio. Trivia's back, baby. Done by Law's legendary Trivia Night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Done By Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Today we revisit the important issue of the concerted push to mine the seabeds of the world. Not content with destroying much of the world by way of land mining over recent decades, now mining companies and speculators have their sights on the deep sea. And there is a concerted fight back by scientists, environmentalists and communities around the world who are likely to be impacted by these new forms of exploitation. I spoke once again with Dr Helen Rosenbaum from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign here in Australia and asked her first about that worldwide campaign to prevent this potential destructive industry gaining acceptance and just how extensive that opposition is. Yes, it is quite widespread and it's growing all the time as people you know, understand that this is an industry that's about to to happen. So it's the global business community as well. 
there's several global businesses that have signed a statement, signed on to a statement pledging to not use minerals sourced from deep sea mining and banks uh, and financial institutions, so which are a target that we put quite a bit of effort into lobbying ourselves as the deep sea mining campaign. So uh, there are now eight banks that have developed policies that exclude financial services for the deep sea mining industry. And we're actually working on insurance companies now because insurance companies also have um, a great influence about whether, over whether projects get off the ground or not. And we're seeing that in relation to the coal industry and some great work that's been done by market forces here in Australia to lobby insurance companies not to insure coal projects. And that's been really effective for stopping coal projects around Australia. And then there's institutions such as the IUCN, the World Conservation Network, uh, which is a network of um, government and civil society members. And uh, last year they passed a resolution um, that was much discussed at the IUCN. It was probably the first time that deep sea mining has been discussed by such a wide audience outside of the tiny little private almost um, groups that are just pushing it along at a rapid pace. So over 600 members of the IUCN passed the resolution, a resolution calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining and also a review of the International Seabed Authority which is the organisation that is responsible for developing the regulations for deep sea mining in international waters. That body has recently come into great disrepute with a um, a great expose in the New York Times just recently, just showing the extent of corporate capture um, at the ISA. And which is an issue that we highlighted oh, about three years ago in a report that we put out called the Why the Rush, which showed just how much the uh, General Secretary of the IFA, who is still the same General Secretary today, was in collusion with uh, a particular mining company, Deep Green, which is now called the Metals Company. But you have to include a, a large number of sciences in that opposition as well? Ah, yes, of course, yes. There's been a a petition that's been signed by over 650 scientists calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining and stating that we just don't know what the impacts of this industry are going to be, but they're likely to be severe and and very long-term, if not forever, basically, especially in terms of human timeframes. So the science community has more and more um, become emboldened. Uh, scientists are typically a little bit wary of taking positions that may make them look like they're political, but more and more scientists are willing to, to speak up and say this, this industry just shouldn't go ahead. And also you've just talked about the metals company and there seems to be a bit of argy-bargy going on about their share price and I'm quite sure that 
there's plenty of shareholders who aren't very happy about what's going on. Well, we follow um, the blog sites of, of the, the metals company um, shareholders and there is um, a fair bit of disquiet and we try to feed in information to that just to make sure that shareholders realise just how garrulous this company is. Uh, but yes, their share price um, dropped from about $12 when they first formed the metals company for a merger with another company uh, between Deep Green and another company, which is about 18 months ago. And they were hoping that the share price would skyrocket from, from that point. But it's actually fallen at its worst. It was about 90 cents a share and it's been hovering at around a dollar or just over one dollar for oh, several months now. So yes, it's it's not doing very well at all, sadly for them. <laughs> You've identified a connection between the CSIRO here in Australia and the metals company and you've written a letter to the CSIRO outlining your concerns. What did you put in that letter and what sort of a reply did you get? Well, the letter went to not only the CSIRO but the minister that's responsible um, for the, to the CSIRO, um, our Minister for Industry, as well as our Federal Minister for the Environment and our Federal Minister for Foreign Affairs. Because um, this this contract that the metals company has with the CSIRO cuts across all those issues. It's of um, concern because of our relationships that we're trying to heal and improve within the Pacific region since the uh, um, the last government. And it's also obviously of concern to our commitments that were just made at the recent United Nations Oceans Conference by Tanya Plibersek to join a global coalition for um, sustainable ocean conservation. Basically, our, our letter outlines all the reasons why the CSIRO should not be engaged with the metals company in developing its environmental monitoring and management plan because it should not be facilitating an industry such as deep sea mining, which is so deeply opposed by so many different sectors of society around the world and particularly opposed by Pacific civil society, which has been very vocal and has actually called for an outright ban on, on deep sea mining. Our letter raised questions about whether it's appropriate for our preeminent national research organisation to be engaged in facilitating deep sea mining, but in particular whether it's appropriate for the CSIRO to be engaged in a contract with this particular company. The metals company has shown itself to not actually be interested in um, proper public participation or in accurate science and in protecting the environment. We believe deep sea mining and environmental protection uh, are not compatible in any case, but the research that has been undertaken by the metals company towards its environmental impact statement for a test it's actually right now starting to conduct within the Pacific Ocean, that research was rather flawed. It had many gaps in it. 
um, the environmental impact statement was heavily criticised, not only by us and other civil society organisations, but also by some governments, such as the UK government, as being insufficient and not meeting baseline standards for environmental impact statements globally or even the international seabed authorities' own guidelines on what an environmental impact statement should contain. So um, the process for developing the environmental impact statement was really not transparent and there was some token uh, webinars about it where participants were just told about the, the statement, but we were not given an opportunity to ask questions and raise our concerns. And just last, in the last couple of weeks, we found out, again through the metals company, that this environmental impact statement has been approved by the International Seabed Authority, which means they can start uh, what's effectively experimental deep sea mining in the Pacific Ocean and that's what they're doing right this minute. Both the metals company and the International Seabed Authority have shown themselves to really not respect public participation and decision making and rigorous environmental science. And did the CSIRO in their letter of reply acknowledge your concerns or not? Well, they basically said that it's not up to an institute like the CSIRO to be making decisions about whether an industry such as deep sea mining should go ahead or any particular company should be allowed to mine and that that was up to the International Seabed Authority to do that and that they trust the ISA to undertake that task. So, of course, we don't trust the ISA, given this secretive approval um, of the environmental impact statement. It was not done via due process as per the ISA's mandate and its own guidelines. It was seems to have been snuck through without the meetings of the, uh, the particular committees that are required to consider such a document. So again, it looks like another instance of corporate collusion with the, looks very much like the Secretary General of the ISA himself approved this environmental impact statement rather than the Legal and Technical Commission, which is a, a body made up of about 40 representatives from different member countries of the ISA. So again, it just looks like um, Michael Lodge doing favours for his mates at the metals company. So the CSIRO is sort of saying, well, it's not our problem. If they agree to it, that's it. But that doesn't give the reason why they're involved in it, especially after you've shown the problems that are inherent in this. That's in right. They, they, they didn't really engage with the issues that we presented in our letter. But I guess they're mainly issues that would be of more more of relevance to the ministers and we'll be following up with those ministers. Penny Wong has been very keen to build bridges again with Pacific Island states after the Scott Morrison government has basically ignored them for the last 10 years. And 
I don't know that this is an issue that will, would help that. It's an issue that's been really divisive within the Pacific, uh, which is something that we've raised in the letter to the CSIRO and the ministers as well, that there are four Pacific Island states that have entered into contracts for deep-sea mining, and three of those are, in fact, um, contracts with this one company, the Metals Company, which means that this garrulous company has access to huge swathes of, of the Pacific Ocean um, seafloor. And five countries have actually called for a moratorium on deep sea mining. Just in the last few days, uh, French Polynesia has come to the fore, joining Fiji, Samoa, Micronesia and Palau, I think it is, in, in calling for uh, a moratorium on deep-sea mining. Tuvalu had a contract with another deep-sea mining company, also linked to the metals company, but different characters, um, who were all in the company Nautilus Minerals some years back, uh, before Nautilus Minerals became bankrupt. Um, So the same... The picture is that there's a really there's a small handful of these greedy, greedy white men who are plaguing the Pacific and want to run roughshod over Pacific civil society to get their hands on what they think are these golden eggs at the bottom of the seafloor that are going to make them a, a fortune. But Tuvalu rescinded its contract with this other company. Um, having you know second thoughts about it and realizing that the the conservation and the protection of their ocean resources was actually far more important than engaging with a company who has no exp- actual real experience in doing this new form of mining and and for which the impacts are just totally unknown well before we talk about the sixteen minute visual investigation into mining. It's over a month since this letter was sent to CSIRO and government and other ministers or other other politicians. Have you had any reply for any of them? No, we haven't. We've had, you know, sort of um, acknowledgements that they've received the letter and they will, you know, attempt to respond. But we suggested in our letter actually that we will follow up with them. So that's okay. And We've also been waiting to complete our video which shows the result of some recent modelling because we'd like to be able to send that to, to the Minister. So we're now in a position to, to do that as well. All right. Well, who did the modelling? Blue Peril, our, our latest campaign effort, has been a project that's three years in the making. So it's a collaborative project between ourselves, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, with a design studio based in Europe called the Interpret Research in, and Design Studio, an oceanographer that's based here in Australia, in South Australia, and also a partner organisation that's based in, in Germany, um, Ocean Dialogue, uh, who has been very active in uh, lobbying against deep sea mining in Europe. And so the video basically represents 
the the modeling results in a and what we hope is an engaging and a rather accessible way and it also includes the perspective and the voices of uh, Pacific Islanders so that we are trying to communicate what the ocean looks like to someone who lives surrounded by it and that just how important the health of the ocean is to peoples who rely on it for their everyday sustenance and their cultural identity. So we try to weave in the video those two things, the, the science and, and the Pacific perspective. And basically the science uses internationally accredited oceanographic models into which uh, current data has been incorporated from international databases. And the modelling looked at what happens um, within the licence areas of the metals company, within its Tongan licence area and its Nauru licence area. And it's actually the Nauru licence area that right now they are beginning what is effectively experimental deep sea mining. So the results of this video are very relevant. Perhaps the most dramatic result is that is the prediction that it would take only three months for pollution that's discharged within the Tongan license area to reach the waters of Kiribati and Hawaii. So that pollution would be from the discharge of what is effectively tailings waste. The deep sea mining industry and the metals company in particular like to claim that one of the benefits of deep sea mining is that there's no such thing as tailings waste. But that's a complete nonsense because basically what they plan to do is scoop up these or dredge up these um, nodules, these polymetallic nodules from the seafloor, carry them up kilometres, um, three to six kilometres through a pipe to a ship on the surface, do a, a bit of initial cleaning up of the nodules on the surface and then discharge the water back to below 1,000 metres. That's the, the schema that they're proposing and that will be what they're testing right now in the Nauru block. So that pollution at 1,000 metres is subject to various currents with which our oceanographer models. And so we were quite startled to see just how quickly the pollution would be taken into the national waters of Hawaii and Kiribati. We don't exactly know what would be carried in the pollution. There would be sediment from um, cleaning up the, the rocks that they intend to, to process. That sediment would just in itself as particles of mud floating in the water would have an impact. It would clog the gills of fish. It would create turbidity, the blocking of light, which will affect the function, um, the mobility and the ability to feed of animals that live in the sea. But the, the possibility of it carrying heavy metals is probably the greatest worry and uh, no modelling has been done of that to date. We don't know 
which heavy metals exactly might be in a bioavailable form at 1,000 metres. It depends on all these different oceanographic characteristics and um, physical characteristics to do with temperature and density and that determine the availability of these metals to be taken up by animals. But once they are taken up into the food chain, there's the sort of fairly horrifying possibility that that will spread you know, right through the food chain, including to us, the top predator, but right through marine food chains to all organisms that come into contact with it. Has this blue peril visual investigation been sent on to the governments of Tonga and Nauru and also to other countries in the general region? Blue Peril was actually launched in June at the United Nations Oceans Conference. We've been just doing some final tweaking to the video just to make it a little bit more um, easy to watch. But we're right now just pushing it out in earnest. So it will be hitting the the desks of those governments very soon. Our uh, Pacific colleagues have been um, waiting impatiently to to get their hands on the final video and the technical notes that accompany it, and they will be uh, presenting it to their governments. Uh, We have a close partnership with the Civil Society Forum of Tonga, and they will be making sure the Tongan government um, is well aware of these findings. There's been quite a lot of division in Tonga, as there has been in, within other countries in the Pacific, um, not only between those countries that have gone with the, with the metals company and those that are calling for a moratorium. But within those, within countries, there's been quite a lot of division um, between civil society and, and their governments. And in these tiny Pacific Island countries, that's quite, that creates quite a lot of tension because they're, they're very small populations and, you know, everybody knows each other. So that's likely to translate into um, divisions even at family level. But the Civil Society Forum of Tonga have been working for some years now to raise awareness, including in some of their more flung outer atolls of deep sea mining and its likely impacts. And they're looking forward to translating the video into their own language and to taking this out to communities and also to screen it on uh, national TV. And we anticipate that that will also happen in the Cook Islands and in Fiji over the next couple of months. Has there been any reaction from the Australian government or even the new Australian governments what their position is on deep sea mining? Uh, We suspect that the new Australian government isn't really aware of all the, the arguments for and against deep sea mining and um, isn't aware of the position its delegation even takes at the International Seabed Authority. The Australian delegation uh, was probably appointed under the, the previous government and are probably just running the lines that they did Um, under that government, although we're yet to completely ascertain that. But 
we are planning to educate the um, the ministers quite soon on the implications of deep sea mining for the region and uh, Australia's role in or the role Australia should be playing. To date, Australia has been very um, quite pro deep sea mining and wanting to rush along the regulations at the International Seabed Authority, unlike many other countries who, even in addition to the Pacific Island states, there have been other countries who are saying we shouldn't be rushing these regulations for deep sea mining and we should be just taking um, a good long look at whether we even want this industry to, to go ahead. And again, the driver for rushing the regulations at the Seabed Authority is the metals company. Via its sponsor, um, sponsoring nation Nauru, it's um, triggered a little-known clause in the constitution of the International Seabed Authority, which basically says that they intend to go ahead with deep sea mining within two years, whether or not the regulations are finalised. So they triggered that last June, which means that they're looking at being allowed to go ahead with deep sea mining next June, whether or not the regulations are finalised. So this has put immense pressure on the International Seabed Authority member nations to try and finalise solid regulations. And it's actually backfiring on Nauru and the metals company because a lot of resentment is now coming to the fore uh, from countries being bullied and pushed into into that position. And the metal com- metals company are probably not going to be ready to actually undertake deep sea mining by next June. Uh, we believe this is a marketing ploy, uh, an attempt to um, increase their share price and that again uh, the key people in the metals company basically just want a quick dollar and they'll walk away from the company just as they did with Nautilus in Papua New Guinea before it went bankrupt. We can hope that there aren't too many gullible people who will put their money into this company. You know, it's surprising. There's always a lot of, you know, small investors who perhaps aren't all that well informed but, uh, you know, are gullible and, you know, vulnerable to the spin that uh, Jared Barron, the CEO of Nautilus, who had been the CEO of Deep Green and is now the CEO of the Metals Company, He's, he's a marketing guy and he's, he's very good at what he does. And, um, and he does suck in uh, a lot, a lot of people. There's a quote, uh, we've often used of the same guy, Jared Barron, and we used it, um, as a caption in our report, Why the Rush, where he, he stated in an interview, whether or not you're interested in deep sea mining, everybody's a sucker for the story. I think that says it all from his perspective. Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, who's from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. My name is Todd Fernando. I'm the Victorian Commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities and you're listening to 3CR. Throughout October, VACA is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA plus communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency is a 3CR supporter. In an email to human rights activist Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, in response to a question about his trip to Western Australia, he replied, I've just returned from the West. Too much on my plate. Assange, Israeli arms manufacturer in Australia, delving into Ethiopian, Eritrean, Tigray wars. My Japanese connection with impressive secular Buddhist organisation. Otherwise, completely free. So I took him up on that and I asked him first, did he meet any of the Eritrean activists now living in either Perth or Fremantle? I met some Tigrayans, actually, a couple of poets. They insisted they were from Tigray, not Eritrea. But, I mean, most of the trouble, or some of the trouble, is because of the appalling government that operates in Eritrea. And and the um, a lot of the refugee camps in Tigray are filled up with people who, who have fled from, uh, from uh, Eritrea. What did the Tigrayans tell you about what's going on? what you can pick up that you've got this incredibly authoritarian government so that ever since they had achieved independence from Ethiopia they've only they've only got a one party system and they've had the same guy as dictator ever since and conscription is infinite i mean there's not they take children from high school send them to military camps to prepare them for conscription and it looks as though there may not be no escape from the conscription, which is what prompts many of the young people to to be on a, in a hurry to, to leave. And being in a hurry to leave means that they get on leaky boats trying to get to Europe. No, they're, they're trying. You wouldn't believe it, but one of their escape routes is across land to Sudan. I mean, in the Horn of Africa, they're not going by... I can't see anybody going by boat because they're crossing the... Eritrean border south into Tigray, and the t- once in Tigray, in the in the war between Eritrea and Ethiopia, t- what was left of the Tigrayans was maintained by opening the border, keeping open the border with Sudan. So poor old Sudan, as poor as a church mouse, has about a million a million refugees from that war. I don't like to use the word complex, but it's, it looks quite complex. And I can remember Stuart many years ago supporting the Eritreans for their independence, but the people that came in after independence, they were okay for a little while, but not for long. Not for long. It looks like a repeat of Mugabe in, in Harare uh, in Zimbabwe, you know, promising the British that there would be, you know, freedom of speech and so on, and he became one of the most um, oppressive, destructive leaders in Africa. And the same has happened with this 
this dictator in um, in Eritrea. I mean, I thought Eritrea was a place that was experimenting with liberty, but it's not. It's quite the reverse. Your Japanese connection with secular Buddhist organisations? Well, that's very impressive. I mean, they've got a, a, a rather impressive leader there called, his name is Daisaku Ikeda, and he said he's had dialogues, published dialogues, with about 56 world leaders, you know, from um, Arnold Toynbee to Linus Pauling, to even even with me. So, and they've got a whole, uh, they run a political party, it's sort of slightly, slightly centre-left, I think. How did I get to know them? Well, one day, a group of Japanese with, with interpreters came into my office to thank me for what I was doing about peace with justice. And they seemed to know more about what we'd done and what we'd written. This was in 1998 than, than people in Australia knew. So they invited me to come to, um, to, uh, to Tokyo to, to see what they were doing. Then I went to, I went to Okinawa with, among others, Joseph Rockblatt, the, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, the inventor of the Pugwash Moot. There's a very significant group. It's called Sakagakai International, and they have pretty impressive headquarters in Olympic Park near the Olympic Stadium in, in Sydney. So that's my connection with them. Were you meeting with them in Western Australia or not? No, no, I was just... I've, I've been trying to write a piece about my Japanese connection in the book I'm writing, just to explore what the Japanese what this Japanese connection is. I mean, it partly, the link occurred because, uh, also because Japan had initially a pacifist constitution. In other words, there was a refusal to go to war. The, there was um, a, an insistence in Japan, in post-war Japan, that their armed forces would never take part in the war. And... The controversy about Shinzo Abe in the past couple of days is because he tried to reverse that. He, want, he, was, uh, he was nostalgic about uh, Japanese war um, achievements. He also had a father who was involved in that war on yeah, the far yeah. right. Yeah, the, soccer, the Buddhist group that I'm that I have close association with, their, their original leaders were people who were imprisoned by the Japanese for conscientious objection during the war. In other words, they, they were punished for objecting to war. That's part, part of the tradition of this, this, this group, this movement. It's a pretty impressive movement because they've got, across, across Japan, they have a very extensive primary, secondary tertiary education system. When you're talking about Shinzo Abe wanting to change the constitution to allow Japan to go to war if, if they wanted to, the present Prime Minister now is following on and looks as though he's going to achieve that. I, I haven't followed him. I have, I've been a bit preoccupied with the amazing policies of the Tory government in Britain. You know, we're being faced with the absurdity of thinking that if you lower the taxes on the rich, the poor will benefit. And if you have 
greater inequality in a country, somehow that will amount to social justice. So these, we've spent decades discovering that those theories are completely false and never work. But the, the, such is the narrow-minded, I would say, stupid dogmatism of this Liz Truss and Mr. Kwasi Karteng, her chancellor, that they, they're going to experiment with. I mean, the chances are that um, the Tories will, well, they're already demanding that she should sack the chancellor, and he's only been there about a week. It's a complete shambles, really is a green light for Mr. Albanese to not push through the tax cuts in this country. Can you understand why he's standing on that line? Well, yeah, he wants to. He wants to go. He wants in subsequent years to say that they always kept their election pledges, contrary to the Tony Abbotts and, and others who immediately broke their election pledges. So even if it runs counter to the interests of the country, Albo wants to be Mr. Clean, Mr. Reliable, Mr. The man who keeps his word, even though it's counterproductive. Everybody, every expert, economist, political commentator is saying, for God's sake, forget about those tax increases. And if he did it now, nobody in two years' time, when there's another election, nobody will remember. But, um, but I think the only explanation I've got is that he wants to be known as the man who keeps his word. What have you found out about an Israeli arms manufacturer here in Australia? I paid ADSIC to send me documents. It's, very, it's actually very difficult to, to, to do these company searches. But essentially, look, it's based here. It's based in Barton in the ACT, the, the Albit, the, the Australian arm of Albit. There seem to be the, the members of the board or the, the, the co-chairs of the board are all former military people, with the exception of the chair, who's a woman called Dr. Karen Stanton. But they don't seem to have any, um, any reservations about helping the Israelis to manufacture more weapons and more means of surveillance. What I can't find at the moment is the extent to which a leading member of the Labour Party is still an enthusiastic lobbyist, which she certainly was, Mary, Mary Eason, who's a, a staunch supporter of Israel, come whatever they do, and is, has also been an outspoken, a very enthusiastic lobbyist for, for this Israeli arms company. And of course, it, that enthusiasm runs consistent with Mr. Pine and Mr. Turnbull's objectives to make Australia one of the leading arms exporters countries in the world. In, fact, in, in the world, in fact, Pine and, Pine and Partners Limited have got large contract with, with Albit, therefore with the Israeli Armed Forces. Mr. Completely Amoral Pine, his company, his company is um, apparently doing very well with these um, arms contracts, literally with the um, with the Israeli Defence Forces. It's great when you get all the expertise of being a, a politician and being a cabinet member to, when you leave, to go on and um, make quite a note for yourself. Yeah, I mean, they're using their networks. I mean, they seem to be, without the idea that you have principles, that you make moral judgments, 
seems to be completely alien to them. It's all about money talking. Human rights doesn't get on the agenda, uh, or doesn't appear to. And given that, I mean, the record of the Israeli army is that a lot of their new manufacturers and surveillance equipment go to experimenting over Gaza. With the new weaponry, the new surveillance equipment is used to spot what their opponents might be doing in the narrow streets of frequently bombed out Gaza. And just about weekly, there's a, a young person dies with, with a bullet from an Israeli soldier in oh, West no, Bank. Not. Yeah, I wouldn't say weekly. I would think on average daily. Mm. But the impunity of Israel is, is one of the persistent abuses of human rights. That impunity, uh, non-accountability is, is terrible. I mean, they, it seems quite obvious that they wish to eliminate all Palestinians from that part of the Middle East. So um, when they talk about from the Jordan to the sea, they mean greater Israel. They mean exceptional Israel. They mean Israel which can do what it likes and nobody, nobody should question them. Then we have the issue of the world-renowned journalist who was shot by a sniper and there's absolutely no doubt, nobody could have any doubt now that it was deliberate murder of her. Absolutely it was. And, of course, they put as much effort into denying the truth as they put into killing people. The machinery, I think it's called Hasbara, which really basically means propaganda. So, And it's true of so many countries who've been, been involved in um, cruelties. They put as much effort into denying the cruelty as in, as in exercising it, as in, in imposing it. The denial machinery is, is enormous, and the West buys it. They deflect attention. They either deny it or say there'll be an investigation which never happened. Well, if you want to talk about denying cruelty, you can only talk about Julian Assange and what he's gone through in the last ten and more Absolutely. years. Absolutely, yeah. I'm going to meet his father for a long morning this time next week in, in Melbourne. I've been looking at the whole complete absence of due process of law. The, the British judiciary, the Swedish prosecutor services, the so-called Department of Justice in Washington, and, and the cowardly Australian government were completely arbitrary in their pursuit of Julian Assange. He was ridiculed, demonized, and given no no due process of law. There was no due process of law in, in the treatment of Julian Assange. It is an absolute disgrace. The, the British judiciary were prejudiced, arrogant, indifferent, cruel, and cowardly Australia went along with it. What do you hope to achieve talking with his father? I think making the public aware that that the due process of law, that this undue respect for the judiciary is misplaced, that this was a, a, a cruel piece of um, a political persecution and revenge. And we have to keep on repeating that. I mean, some of the, some of the detail is quite complex, but it really amounts to nothing more than saying that due process never occurred.
the judge's behaviour, these are privileged men and women dressed up in British courts, and they, they take part in something called theatre, as far as I'm concerned. It has nothing to do with the principles and rules of law. They make it up as they make up their minds on the basis of their privileged prejudices, and they make up their minds as they go along. One has to keep on protesting. There's not much more. I mean, we can do. Nils Meltzer, the special rapporteur, United Nations rapporteur on torture and, un and inhumane punishment, has written a brilliant, utterly brilliant book called The Trial of Julian Assange. It should have an impact. We should publicize, I should publicize what's in it. What, quite what, uh, I'll work out with um, Julian's father. I'm not sure, but, um, you know, solutions come from conversations. Well, finally, Stuart, with all these issues churning in your head, what was your holiday? Well, we went to a wonderful museum, a new museum in um, Perth, and we saw uh, an, an amazing display of dinosaurs, which... Um, made ordinary humans feel uh, pygmy-like. I caught up with lots of friends. I caught up with Palestinians whom I'd helped to get out of Gaza uh, years ago. So I, we, I had a reunion with them and their families. That's always rewarding. All right. Well, we'll talk again. Oh, all right, Jan. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.